seems to me that the first step to take when discussing well-being is to distinguish between instrumental value and non-instrumental value, sometimes called intrinsic or final value. I'm, I'm going to usually call it non-instrumental value, but as a matter of fact, I'm going to rarely talk about instrumental value, so almost all the discussion in my papers about, as I say, is about non-instrumental value or final value. So what are the candidate non-instrumental values? Um, well, here's a quick uh, shot. Beauty, justice and fairness, achievement, knowledge, love and friendship, autonomy, pleasure and virtue. Uh, now, I'm going to follow Tom Herka more or less in conceiving of virtue as loving the good and being, dis being disposed to feel and do as one ought. Beauty may or may not necessarily be connected to what judges would find beautiful under certain conditions. In addition, beauty may or may not be of value beyond its contribution to the well-being of living things. Appreciating true beauty, I'm going to set, just set those issues aside, appreciating true beauty strikes me as a non-instrumental good. And a life with such appreciation is pro tanto better than one without. Such a life is better non-morally. It's not morally better, it's non-morally better. And this fact pushes me to think that such a life is better for the person who has it than a life as much as possible like that life, except devoid of the appreciation of true beauty. So I accept that the appreciation of true, of true beauty is one thing that constitutes an addition to well-being. I really think the same is true of achievement, knowledge, autonomy, and pleasure. And I accept much of what Tom Herker said yesterday and in his earlier writings about which achievements and which knowledge are the most valuable. Um, in brief, extended and difficult achievements are better than narrow and easy ones, and extended and explanatory knowledge is better than narrow and shallow knowledge. But let me move away from the points of agreement to points on which Tom either didn't address yesterday or about which he and I disagree. <clears throat> An issue that Tom did not take up yesterday was the status of justice and fairness. Now, some philosophers have contended that your being treated unjustly or unfairly constitutes a harm to you. I mean, that the most prominent defender of that view is, in fact, very local to here. Not in the room right now, but local to here. Um, the contrary view is that being treated unjustly or unfairly is instrumental to harms to you, but not constitutive of a harm to you. I think that justice and fairness are tremendously important instruments in protecting welfare and perhaps even in pointing out whose welfare should get priority, but being treated justly or unfairly does not itself constitute a gain in terms of well-being, and nor does treating, being treated unjustly or unfairly constitute a loss in well-being. Justice and fairness are not themselves components or elements of well-being. Now, my list of non-instrumental values contains love and friendship. Yesterday, Tom suggested that we don't need a separate category for these, since they can be subsumed under achievement and virtue. Okay, so let me just propose a little thought experiment. I've got this friend named Frida. That Frida has put up with me and forgiven me and found the good in me and sustained her interest in me all these years really is a remarkable achievement on her part given how conflicted and moody and self-deluded and self-destructive and generally obnoxious I am. In contrast, that I have continued to love Frida is no achievement on my part, given how breathtakingly easy it is she is to, she, it is to admire her and appreciate her. So, you might say, this plays into Tom's hands. Frida's loving me is an achievement, on the one hand, and on the other hand, my loving her is a virtue, since after all, what I'm doing is loving the good. 
I nevertheless think that love and friendship should have its own heading on the list of non-instrumental values, and they are not merely to be included under achievement and virtue. And to explain why I think this, I have to explain something that I accepted from Tom, I think over 25 years ago. I can remember hearing this argument in Wolfson College and thinking, ah, oh, that's true. <laughs> He's right. Um, in my terminology, the point is that a life's contain more of one kind of non-instrumental value. Sorry. In my terminology, terminology, the point is that a life's containing more of any one kind of non-instrumental value has diminishing marginal benefit. For example, a life with no achievement but a lot of pleasure would benefit a great deal from gaining a significant achievement. Call this, for the sake of argument, just for a moment, achievement A. And suppose that this achievement A has size S. So we've got achievement A of size S. And that produces a benefit for someone of B. Um, now another life, one with lots of achievement already, so we're comparing two lives, one that has no achievement and then all of a sudden gets this achievement A of size S, benefit B, and another life that already had lots of achievement in it, and then this second life has added to it achievement A of size S. My suggestion is, following Tom, that although the second life has the same size achievement, same achievement of same size, it has a different benefit. Because the second life already had a lot of achievement in it, so an additional achievement is not that much benefit to the second life. Whereas the first life that didn't have any achievement in it until the first, this first one, A, got a lot of benefit out of that first achievement. Okay, that's the idea. Now, the relevance of diminishing marginal benefit to a life, of its containing more instances of a kind of value of which it already contains a lot, is that if love and friendship didn't have their own heading on the list of non-instrumental values, but were instead merely folded in under the headings of achievement and virtue, then a life that already had a lot of achievement and virtue, but as yet no love or friendship, might not benefit very much from the addition of that first friendship. Because after all, the friendship is under achievement and virtue, and it's already got a lot of achievement and virtue. But a life that had already a lot of... But, so here's the argument, but... A life that already had a lot of achievement in virtue, but no love or friendship, would, as a matter of fact, benefit a lot from the addition of the first friendship. Um, so, modus tollens, uh, love and friendship are not merely to be folded in under the, under the headings of achievement and virtue, but instead of their own category. I'm, I'm, that, that, that might come back up in discussion, so, but I'll move on to another point where I part company with Tom. Are achievement, knowledge, love and friendship, autonomy and pleasure valuable primarily or exclusively as constituent elements of well-being, or are they valuable in their own right and we can bypass thinking in terms of well-being, as Tom suggested yesterday? I will offer you three arguments against the line he took yesterday. The line he took yesterday being, we don't really need the concept of well-being, we can just talk about a good life. Okay, so here's the first argument. Consider four cases. In the first case, I have a painful operation so as to prevent my developing an even more painful condition later. Everybody thinks that's perfectly rational and intelligible. So that we do it, perhaps, I hope we don't have to do it all the time, but we do it when necessary. Right? We impose a cost on ourselves for the sake of a larger gain to ourselves later. The second case is one in which I take my small child to have a painful operation so as to prevent her from having an even more painful condition later. This is regrettable that she has to undergo this operation, but it's hardly objectionable. 
In the third case, I impose a loss of one kind of mon on my child for the sake of a larger benefit of another kind, but for my child. So in the second case, I imposed a, a pain for the sake of, let's say, preventing her from having more pain later. In the third case, I'm imposing a cost of one kind. It might be, uh, the, to take the example you used yesterday, the trauma of sending her to school for the sake of benefits of a different kind, namely knowledge and achievement later. Okay, everybody thinks that's okay too. But now we move to a fourth case, and in the fourth case I impose on one person a cost in terms of achievement or knowledge or love or friendship or autonomy or pleasure for the sake of a benefit to someone else in terms of one of those things. Now while this might be justified, sorry, this might be justified. I'm justified in stepping on your toe to save somebody else's life, of course. Um, so I'm imposing a cost on you for a benefit to someone else. Nevertheless, this fourth case seems to me very unlike the first three. And the difference seems to me that in the first three cases, a loss in terms of a person's well-being is being imposed for the sake of a greater gain in terms of that same person's well-being. Whereas in the fourth case, of course, a loss on one person is being imposed for the sake of someone else's gain. Now, I agree that it can be right to impose a cost on one person for the sake of a bigger gain to someone else, as in my example of stepping on someone's toe to save someone else's life. But much bigger differences in the size of the benefit and the cost are morally required in the interpersonal case than in the intrapersonal case. So in the intrapersonal case, it would be okay to impose a cost on somebody for the sake of an even slightly larger gain to that same person, as in my child, for example, or myself. Uh, whereas when in the interpersonal case, the gain to the other person has to be much larger than the cost to the one and to impose the one. That, I'm just, I mean, that's just an in intuition, of course, and it's not one act utilitarians uh, would accept, but, um, but it does seem to me a common intuition, and it plays in favor of this idea that the inter interpersonal case is quite different than the intrapersonal case. Okay, here's my second argument against Tom. <coughs> point yesterday. Think about a case where a prospective pleasure is competing against a prospective achievement. Suppose you could either give your niece enough money for a very pleasant week at the beach or give your nephew enough money to enable him to delay going back to work for a week so that he can finish his epic poem. So you're basically giving uh, niece pleasure versus nephew a, an opportunity for achievement, an opportunity to complete an achievement. Should you just weigh the amount of pleasure for your niece against the magnitude of the achievement for your nephew? Um, <coughs> That seems to me to be a mistake. Um, it, instead, what you should do is think about the size of the benefit to your niece of the pleasure versus the size of the benefit to your nephew of the achievement. You don't just weigh the pleasure period against the achievement period, but instead the benefits to the two people against each other in order to decide what to do. It seems to me that's the way you should decide what to do. And that seems to suggest that you have to go via the thinking about well-being, not just um, straight from the pleasures to the achievements. Here's my third argument. Lives can be evaluated, of course, as more or less moral ones. So we imagine two lives which were equal in other respects, but the agent in one of these lives is virtuous and the agent in the other is not morally virtuous. Um, I know that's a little bit of a hard thought experiment, that two lives are <laughs> equal in other respects, except that one's moral and one's not. But n n for the sake of, I mean, I won't get into the complications about that. S suppose you can do such a comparison. Is, the, is um, the life of the virtuous person better? Well, definitely it's better. 
Uh, but it's non-morally better. Is it better? Sorry, is, sorry, it's sorry. It's better. It's morally better. Is it? Is it non-morally better? Um, uh, I'm at a loss what that could mean. Except, is the life aesthetically better? You might think a moral life is aesthetically better than a non-moral life. I think many people have held that view. Um, or you could ask the question: Is this life better in terms of the well-being of the person who lives it? just by virtue of its being moral. Actually, I think we can come up with examples where a morally good life was less good for the person who lived it, and indeed even less good aesthetically than the life of the, pers the person would have had had they not had or had less moral virtue. Okay, so those are my three arguments. I'm sure they'll come back up in discussion. But now I'm going to move on to an issue that Anthony discussed yesterday under the title of hybrid views. The particular variety of hybrid view I want to discuss is Joseph Raz's, um, which was a very influential one. Uh, Raz championed the partly objectivist view that well-being consists in the successful pursuit of worthwhile goals, um, or as we might put it in, in Susan Wolf's terms, subjective engagement with objective value. Raz's theory is partly objectivist because the goals are worthwhile because which goals are worthwhile is an objective, evaluative question about values. Quote, unlike our habits, about which we may have not a good word to say, goals are supported by approving judgment. One must regard one's goals in a way which ascribes to them desirability characteristics. That's a quote from Raz. People, quote, engage in what they do because they believe it to be a valuable, worthwhile activity. To the extent that their valuation is misguided, it affects the success of their life, unquote. And finally, a person's belief that his goal is valuable does not make it so. People can think they're pursuing goals with desirability characteristics and yet be mistaken. So people can unknowingly pursue valueless goals. Um, that's the end of the quotes. And people who are successful in pursuing valueless goals do not thereby add to their well-being, according to Raz. Now, Raz's theory is not wholly objectivist. Facts about an individual subject's intentions and psychological engagement do matter crucially for him. Someone would fail to benefit from having good things in her life, like knowledge or friendship, if she didn't have the right intentions and attitudes towards those things. <coughs> I think we should accept Raz's contention that the kind of life that is best for the agent is one with successful pursuit of worthwhile goals. This is what Anthony called yesterday full fare, I think. So the hybrid view is, a, is, is definitely a good view of full fare or the best life, subjective engagement with worthwhile uh, goals. And I think we also should accept that Raz's ranking of active over passive states is to be welcomed. Here's one of the places where we find an element of Aristotelianism in Raz's ethics. He, he holds that the development of human capacities for planning and pursuing campaigns to achieve significant goals, not the satisfaction of animal appetites, is the core of human well-being. Okay. While, Raz, while accepting that Raz has correctly captured the core and indeed most of what constitutes human well-being, I here put forward an argument for thinking that pleasure can add to someone's well-being even if this pleasure is not associated with a successful pursuit of worthwhile goals. Suppose AJ has a life with a given amount of successful pursuit of worthwhile goals. It doesn't matter really how much, whether that's high or low for the sake of this argument. But now suppose that AJ is given an increment of passive pleasure. Um, not pleasure from the pursuit of worthwhile goals. Maybe he's introduced to a drink he can savor each night right before bed. 
Um, or perhaps he is, uh, speaking of which, cherry juice. I've, I've, I've recently learned that drinking cherry juice right before bed helps you go to sleep. So suppose he, he perhaps he doesn't need to go to sleep. He just, he just enjoys cherry juice and he has a drink of it every night right before bed. Um, or perhaps he's blessed with particularly pleasurable dreams each night. I take it that that's a kind of passive pleasure, not an active one. In either case, hasn't his well-being increased, admittedly only a little, but still increased by the virtue of these passive pleasures he's obtained? I propose that of any two individuals with equally successful pursuit of equally worthwhile goals, the one whose life contained a bit more pleasure, even if this pleasure is only of a passive kind, has greater well-being. Now, Raz anticipated this objection, and so here's a, a fairly long quote from him, uh, which is meant to be his answer to it. He says, Not all pleasures contribute to one's well-being. I stretch myself on the beach and enjoy the warmth of the sun. I see a pretty rose and enjoy the sight. My life is not better or more successful as a result. It's different. It, it, it would be different if I'm a beach bum or a flower lover. So Raz is a, a, not a beach bum or a flower lover. But in that case, the passive pleasure fits in with my activities. I'm the sort of person who will make, uh, sorry, if he were that sort of person, he would be the sort of person who would make sure that the life is room, there's room in his life for these pleasures. In that case, the occasional pleasure contributes, if it does, to my well-being because it contributes a tiny bit towards the success of the activities I'm set upon. If I have no interest in the sun on the beach or in flowers, these pleasures, while being real enough and, and while valuable as pleasures, do not contribute to my well-being. They have no bearing on my life as a whole. The pleasure has a meaning in the life of the flower lover which differs from its meaning in the life of one who is not a flower lover. That difference makes it reasonable to regard the pleasure as active in one case and passive in the other. It's active where it meshes with one's general orientation to life. That's the end of the quote. Well, I agree that pleasures matter more to some people than others, of course, and I agree that the pleasure of looking at a flower differs in meaning depending on whether the pleasure meshes with which, 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 ah, whether the pleasure meshes with one's projects. But agreeing with Raz about those matters does not preclude also thinking that passive pleasures do add to well-being, even if only a tiny amount sometimes. Since examples such as the one about AJ persuade me that passive pleasures do add to well-being, I'm willing to be a bit more subjectivist than Raz is. I'm also... Okay, so that's my argument against Raz on passive pleasures. I, I think passive pleasures uh, are an addition to well-being. So, to, take, to use Anthony's language from yesterday, I don't think that uh, subjective pursuit of objective ends, the subjective pursuit is a necessary condition and the objective... I'm going to get on to this. I don't think that objective value is a necessary end either. I think they're both just um, sufficient conditions, not necessary conditions. So here's my bit about the objectivist part. This is against Raz on, on um, the objectivist, objective value is a necessary condition. Suppose someone stumbles upon an important, on important wisdom or falls into a rewarding relationship. Actually, I think I know people who just, they haven't set out to learn something really important. They just stumbled upon it and they haven't set out to get have a rewarding relationship they really literally did fall into it lucky bastards even if obtaining important wisdom and having rewarding relationships weren't this person's goals don't the wisdom and the relationship this person obtains add to her well-being suppose now that she does not appreciate the value of that wisdom or the relationship so she not only obtains this really important deep 
sorry, extended and explanatorily rich knowledge. She doesn't appreciate it, but she has it. And she, and she falls into this relationship. She doesn't appreciate the relationship, but she has it. And in fact, she never appreciates the, 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 that knowledge or that relationship until very late in life, maybe even on her deathbed. Kind of melodramatic case. You can imagine her on her deathbed, nevertheless, thinking, gee, this good has been there my whole life and I didn't appreciate it. What a fool I was. I had this pit of knowledge, it was really important, and I didn't, and I, I lucked upon it, that's true, but I had it, I never forgot it, that was really important, and I was a fool not to appreciate it. Or, even more perhaps uh, uh, vividly, I had this relationship, it was a wonderful relationship, I fell into it, it was, I didn't set out to obtain it, wasn't sort of, an, the relationship wasn't an achievement really, it was something that, that befell me through good luck. Um, but it was a fantastic thing, and it's been there, my, this good's been in my whole life, and it actually made my life a lot better than I thought at the time. In fact, I, I now realize I had quite a good life, really. Um, okay, that's what she's thinking on her deathbed. Now, I think, actually, she might, on her deathbed, those thoughts might be correct. And if they are correct, their correctness surely can't depend on her having them. Um, put crudely, it could be a true proposition that because of a great unappreciated good pervading a person's life, this person had been better off than she realized. And the truth of this proposition does not depend on the person's ever coming to believe it. In other words, if the person dies without ever having even considered the proposition, or perhaps considered it but rejected it, the proposition might nevertheless be true. But if the proposition is true, then the agent's subjective appreciation of a good is not a necessary condition of that good's having added to her well-being. Now, Raz himself denies what he calls the trans... This, is, this phrase is, is his phrase, the transparency of intrinsic value. That is the thesis that, in his words, a feature is intrinsically good only if, under normal conditions, the person... <coughs> or other animal for whom it is a good, is content with its presence and prefers it to its absence." Unquote. Now, I too deny the transparency of intrinsic value. Because I deny this transparency, I can hold that a person's well-being was greater because of some wisdom she happened upon or a relationship she fell into, although throughout the time her life contained these elements, she was not content with their presence or did not, and did not, sorry, that she was not content with their presence and even if she preferred their absence. Now, Again, I mean, this is the thing about Raz. He always anticipates the objections you come up with. So he anticipated this one as well. And here's a even longer quote. Sorry, not, not such a long quote, but here's a long quote um, in, 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 in response. He says, well, let me just say, what he's about to say is a big concession. Okay, so I, I mean, he's a, here's the objection, and he's going to give you a, con, a big concession in, in response to this objection. And then what I'm going to say afterwards is the concession isn't big enough. It's big, but it should have gone further. Okay, so here's his concession. He says, The condition of wholehearted pursuit presupposes that even where the activity or commitment or relationship is not one which the agent chose or could abandon by choice, he is in control of the manner of his engagement in it. He has to direct his conduct in the light of his objectives and commitments to guide himself towards his goal. In the main, the notions involved exclude resentment, pathological self-doubt, lack of self-esteem, self-hate, etc. 
one is acting wholeheartedly if one is not, as long as, he says, if, as long as one is not prey to one of those attitudes, resentment, pathological self-doubt, lack of self-esteem, self-estate, etc. Nothing else is required. No reflective endorsement of one's activity. No second order desire to continue with it, etc. The fact that certain alternatives never cross one's mind may be a condition of having an appropriate attitude to people or activities. So, the subjective engagement doesn't the subjective engagement, engagement can be pretty, in fact, pretty unreflective is the point. It needn't be subjective engagement where that's a reflective self-engagement. It just needs to be, really, it just needs to not have resentment, pathological self-doubt, lack of self-esteem, or self-hate in it. Okay, so that, I take it that's a quite a big concession. But, and I think it's a good concession he made, but I think he should have gone further. I mean, the concession is that in order for an activity to benefit a person who engages in it, it's not necessary for the person to reflectively endorse the activity or to have a second order to desire to desire it, etc. Where the agent's activity or relationship to, or other good is something he does not reject or resent, his successful engagement with it adds to his well-being, according to Raz. Well, I think that concession doesn't go far enough. His condition of wholehearted pursuit, that condition he puts on, which is a necessary condition, he thinks, restricts the activities and relationships that constitute benefits to an agent to those activities and relationships the agent does not doubt, reject, or resent. However, an agent's activity or relationship or some other good in his life could be something that the agent actively resents or rejects, and yet this activity or relationship or some other good in his life could still constitute an addition to his well-being, I think. Of course, the upset he experiences uh, by being involved in something that he resents is a loss to him, but the loss should not blind us to the possible associated gain. For illustration, imagine an agent who has a relationship that she didn't choose and came to resent. So here she is. She's, she's got this relationship. She didn't choose it. Uh, I mean, it might be a child, for example, that she didn't choose to have. And she comes to resent this relationship. For years, she resents it. And then she finally comes to see that, in fact, this relationship was a blessing that she hadn't recognized. Though not chosen, though long resented, this relationship she discovers turns out to be the one, the, one of the most significant things in her life. Perhaps it turns out to be the only significant relationship in her life. Perhaps even the only significant good thing in her life. Neither the fact that she didn't choose the relationship, nor the fact that she resented it for years, precludes the relationships constituting an important addition to her well-being, I submit. Now, again, this is a truth the agent might come to see on her deathbed, or I, I hope much earlier. Then again, the agent might not be so fortunate as to come to see it. In fact, this is, an, I mean, I, don't, I, you know, I think this is another truth that's not transparent. Um, okay, so I've contended that the limits of well-being extend farther both in a subjectivist direction and in an objectivist direction than Raz allows. I've argued that passive sensations, the subjective element, can be sufficient on their own to constitute at least a little well-being. And I've also argued that objective goods, such as knowledge and relationships, even if not chosen and even if resented, can on their own constitute an addition to well-being, though the distress they cause is also constitutes abstraction from well-being. Whether the addition is greater than the subtraction <laughs> depends on the importance of the knowledge, the nature of the relationship, the amount of distress, and perhaps other things. Perhaps it also depends on 
the, uh, perhaps the other things it depends on, are, as I suggested earlier, how much other th good things are in the person's life and what kind of good things those are. Um, to, reiter to reiterate, again, I, I accept the hybrid view, as Anthony discussed it yesterday, or Raz's um, subjective engagement with objective value, uh, is, identifies the ideal, the full fare. Um, what I'm claiming, though, is that um, it's not a necessary condition of something's constituting an addition to well-being that it either have a sub the subjective element or that it have the objective element. As long as it has one of the two, then it can be good enough. Okay, finally I'm going to close by turning to the issue of preferences, which I haven't said much about at all. Um, I c confess that um, I guess I think that the desire satisfaction theory the, or the desire fulfillment theory or the preference satisfaction theory is of the three main kinds of account of well-being the least plausible. I, I think myself that hedonism is more plausible than that view and the objective list is even more plausible than hedonism. But, but, I haven't argued for any of that of course, but uh, here anyway, but, um, but uh, nevertheless... I think that autonomy is one of the basic elements of well-being, and I think that very often treating people in accordance with their self-regarding preferences does benefit them, even though these preferences are mistaken, because of the importance of autonomy. So, um, if, I, if I treat Roger in accordance with his preferences, but those preferences, and their self-regarding ones, so I'm trying to do what's best for him, I consider his self-regarding preferences. I think those self-regarding preferences are misguided and mistaken, but I also think that autonomy is an important component of well-being, then perhaps the best way for me to, or the, the thing that I could do most to increase his well-being is to treat him in accordance with this mis misguided preferences that he's got. But even when treating people in accordance with their self-regarding preferences would not benefit them, often treating people in that way is what morality requires, of course, because people's rights to determine various things that happen to them or happen to others. This is just an instance of the very familiar point that an act that would maximize well-being is not always one that morality allows. Well-being has immense importance. I myself accept that all moral rules, including ones about rights, derive ultimately from impartial consideration of well-being. But that's not to say that in every case what would maximize well-being is morally required. Indeed, I think in many cases maximizing well-being is not even morally allowed. Thank you very much.